Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, climate change has sparked a sharp rise in fires, floods, and other natural calamities. Now the Biden administration has directed the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, to speed up victims' ability to get immediate monetary support, including benefits like displacement assistance. And Governor Maura Healey has proposed a permanent state-funded disaster relief resiliency fund. Plus, bottled water used to be a symbol of healthier living, but new research reveals plastic water bottles have up to 100 times more tiny plastic particles than previously estimated, a threat to the environment and health. And bitter cold unplugged electric vehicles across the country as batteries lost their charge. It's our Environmental News Roundtable. Later in the show, English language dictionaries are common in the U.S., but the effort to create dictionaries of indigenous languages is growing, including one capturing Cabo Verdean Creole. Whoever spoke Creole at that time, you would be punished corporally and spiritually. You know, you would send to the chapel to pray Ave Marias and then also being punished, you know, physical uh, punishment. A local publisher is documenting the language of the West African nation and of greater Boston immigrants in a dictionary to be published later this year. But first, joining me remotely, Dr. Gaurav Basu, Director of Education and Policy at the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Hi, Gaurav. Hi, Callie. Thanks for having me. I'm so delighted to have you. Also with me, Beth Daly, Executive Editor and General Manager of The Conversation U.S. Welcome, Beth. Thanks for having me back. And also with me, Cabell Eames, Policy Consultant for Vote Solar. Hi, Cabell. Hi, Callie. It's great to be back. Glad to have all of you. Well, let's start with the uh, Resiliency Fund uh, proposed by Governor Maura Healey uh, to be a permanent um, uh piece of policy, and also uh, the Biden administration directing the Federal Emergency Management Agency to speed up the process of of getting um, monetary support and benefits to victims. And the reason for all of this, of course, is we've just come off of just a spate of bad weather in uh, many parts of the country that has just turned um, away from what has been typical in these areas. So there are areas of the country that you all know that used to be cold, that are now hot, that used to be hot, that are now cold. And with all of it comes more and more and more to the point of emergency. So that's the response. But we're going to talk about the climate change, um, which has, in my mind, this is clearly demonstrative of what the deal is. I mean, there's no other explanation for it. Right, Doctor? 
Yeah, Kelly, I mean, you know, we're we're talking here in January and now we've collected the data for 2023 and it was um, a really extraordinary year of warming. And so maybe I, I'll, I'll speak to your point here that a, a really critical point is that climate change and global warming is not just about real bad heat waves in the summer. That's a big thing we're seeing here locally, of course, but it really dysregulates our climate system and it makes um, these kind of extremes occur more frequently, uh, whether it's drought or, or flooding or, um, or, or, you know, these kind of heat waves. So um, it's a challenge, but I think we are now firmly in the era of seeing with our own eyes the impacts of climate change and the disasters it impacts. Um, we're seeing, you know, the impacts on, you know, insurance companies. I, I grew up in California and there's in, you know, home insurers that are, you know, no longer um, providing that protection. And this disaster relief is a big deal. You know, these kind of um, disaster events can really upend people's lives. I think about my patients and people who are tenuous with their health or or um, financially, one big event can really um, impact the rest of their lives. And so having this disaster relief is a really big deal. I just want to point out that the New York Times uh, notes that the United States experienced 28 disasters in 2023 that each cost at least one billion dollars. And that was according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. This is the highest number on record to underscore what you just said. Um, and the latest measure, they say, of the growing financial toll on climate change, which should get some climate deniers on board with understanding that, you know, movement has to be made in a some kind of con conservation arena because this is this is real. These are the numbers. Um, Beth, what say you? This billion-dollar disaster list has shattered the U.S. record um, from the past. I mean, we've spent more money on uh, disasters in the past, but not having ones that are so many over $1 billion of losses. It, it's profound. And what it I mean, that's scary enough with climate change, but what it means for people on the ground, um, if, if you look at these communities that have been flooded, is that you're at, you know, you get out of your house, your belongings are gone, and you look to the federal government or sometimes the state government for help, and you need help right away. It's not even at the point of rebuilding your house, or it's more like, where are you going to stay tonight? What's going to happen right then? So what has been really a seismic change, I think, in the federal government is that the um, FEMA, uh, the Emergency Management um, Agency, is saying now we're going to give money more quickly to people as soon as a disaster hits and you're, you're affected. And that is going to really make a really big difference for people to get situated, get clothing, get get temporary housing and until they can do the next step. There's no secret that getting disaster aid is often for the is often for the wealthy, quite honestly. You have to have savvy. You have to have fill out a lot of forms. You have to do a lot of things to get the money. And it can take a long time and you need help. For, and people who are not equipped with the system need help with that. So th this money will definitely help. Governor Healy's office has just released the first $10 million of disaster relief funding for communities that were damaged by flooding last year just so people understand how this normally works. That's the slow process. And um, as you said, in trying to put your life back together, that's just not going to work for everybody on the ground immediately. So the permanent uh, cabal, the permanent firm, uh, the permanent fund 
would be just that. In other words, we're not waiting till the event, then we solicit the federal government, or then we try to figure out where we get it from state funds. We have a fund already that's permanent, and that's where we go when these disasters hit. So, Cabell, what's your response? Well, I mean, I think it's extremely proactive, the administration, to work this way. But I do think about this with two minds. I mean, obviously, we need resiliency policy at the local level as well. It, we can't rely on state and federal funds um, at the drop of a hat. I think that we need to, local leaders need to be thinking through their resiliency planning models. And we just can't go with the status quo. And, and Cabell, what would that look like? If you were going to suggest, what would that look like on the local level? So what that would look like is I, I would I would look around a community and I would wonder where are my resilient, where, where's my natural resiliency, right? So that means like, where, where are my open spaces? And right now you have a lot of communities that are installing uh, plastic grass, right? That's, that's, that's a substance that cannot take in water. And so you are then creating more of a flood effect when you make those type of decisions. And so the, to me, like that's a 20th century decision, right? We're, we're in the 21st century where there are floods, wildfires. We're in this volatile weather pattern. It's going to continue. So part of it looks that way for me, but also as far as the building codes, uh, the green energy spaces, we also have to ward off these type of events because they're just going to get worse. Well, let's move on to decisions we made a long time ago when we were trying to be healthier. Let's drink bottled water. Some people thought that's the answer. Get away from whatever uh, for them suspect ingredients may be in tap water. And now it turns out that there are tiny little particles that are ending up in our bloodstream. And so before you guys uh, respond to that, there's new research that says uh, that now there may be up to 100 times more tiny plastic particles than was first recognized. Um, and obviously this is a concern. Here is a CBS. Um, they spoke with three scientists about the health impacts noted in the new research. When they are getting into the nano size, can potentially can get into the blood and then they can be transported to the vital organs. The particles there can actually bypass the cells of the GI system. I can potentially cut down my water, I mean, bottled water consumption maybe by, by half. Is this newest information surprising to you? Yeah, I, I don't know if it's surprising. It's definitely alarming. You know, the number, um, you know, the sheer quantity um, that is present and, and you know, more and more we're getting uh, reports of just how omnipresent, you know, micro uh, plastic is in our food systems and our, our, um, our bottles, et cetera. And there's a lot of research that still needs to be done to truly understand the impacts on health here. You know, when you think of these really small um elements embedding into your body, what it means is it can get deeper into your, um, through your blood flow and to your organs. And so we think about that with air pollution, for example, right? Particulate matter is very small. So it can deeply embed into your lungs, for example. Uh, the same is true with microplastics, you know, concern about inflammation, its impact on um, healthy cell growth, um, endocrine disrupting um, mechanisms. So there's there's a lot of potential harms here, um, and frankly, you know, understanding the 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 exact um, health uh, impacts of these kind of findings is something we're going to need a deep well of literature and, and research to to dive into. So, Beth, when I uh, first read this uh, new research, 
you know, I kind of freaked out like everybody else did. But I also thought about the fish that we've been talking about for years and how um, the fish that are coming up on shore and they're full of the plastics that have been released um, because we use so much plastic in general. Um, and we're just another animal. <laughs> and here we are. Uh, of course, this research talks about the tiny, tiny, tiny particles. And often with the fish, it's it's larger pieces, but but it's the same deal. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot, we just so much we don't know. What struck me about this study was, the, I think it's somewhat, um, it's not funny, but the fact that they believe a lot of the nanoplastics are getting into the bottles, I believe, from sort of a, a shedding from the interior of the bottle, or actually during the purification process itself, like when they purify the water to go in the bottle, which is... Um, you know, makes you sort of pause and makes me uh, continue drinking tap water. Um, how it's playing out in the ocean and affecting species there is, I mean, there's a there's a growing number of studies that hint and point to that fish are being potentially severely affected by it, but we don't know that much. Um, we certainly know plastics in the ocean are ubiquitous. Um uh, and then fish take up those plastics often. <laughs> and, um, you know, and once the fish ingests them, these microplastics and I, I guess these nanoplastics can reach the, you know, the gastrointestinal tract and be absorbed, um, that can cause some toxic toxicity. You know, that has implications for human health. It has implications for the fish species itself, but exactly what they are and the direct pathways is not yet clear. And Cabell, I don't know about you, uh, maybe you never drink bottled water, but um, I have a tendency to collect them in my car. So figuring healthier, I can always have some if I'm around. And that's one of the things the research said, do not do. Like it gets worse um, if you leave it around in the car and then I have more tiny particles, as it turns out. I mean, these are kinds of things that I just never would have associated with um, what is essentially sold as a, a pure product. Yeah, it certainly feels like everything all at once, right? I mean, it's just, I, I have a lot of bottled water in my house because um, I have emergency and prepared kits in case we ever have to evacuate or we lose power. So they're all over my house too. But um, just this week, I was at the state house for a Beyond Plastics and Zero Waste forum that was a packed room where they showed a documentary called We're All Plastic People Now. And basically the sediment was that we've all been, uh, you know, in, inducted into an experiment that we did not consent to. And the nanoplastics is incredibly alarming. Um, but I think that the companies that are the most responsible for my research was Coca-Cola and Nestle because they own the, the largest amount of plastics. And the industry right now is doubling down on plastics because of the, the phase out of oil and, uh, and coal. So it's extremely concerning that that is happening. But um, I'm, I'm just, you know, all of these articles um, and these stories just raise awareness, but that awareness has to lead to action. And I hope that there are some policies that we will see that are enacted soon because regulation is going to have to intervene here. It's the only way forward because we as individuals have plasticized our lives, right? And what was what was a convenience is now our doom. Um, so let me follow up with you then, Cabell, and ask there's a, a small movement to, for a new Massachusetts bottle bill that would... Um, 
require a 10 cent deposit for a water bottle, um, which, you know, generally when people have to start putting a little money on something, you know, that slows down the process. Is that a, a good thing? Um, if it maybe this gives it energy, um, this latest research. I believe it does. Yeah. I mean, that was part of the information session that I attended at the State House. They were talking about the, the bottle bill and, and how it hasn't been updated in decades um, and how this would incentivize, you know, less plastic uh, and waste. And it would and also incentivize waste reduction. Um, it is a good thing. It has been filed several times. Um, hopefully it'll make it out of committee. There is some energy there, though, now, you know, based on the forum and the amount of people that were in that room. That was a packed room that sat through and watched that documentary. Um, but we do need it because, I mean, we just have to rethink how we've been doing everything, right? I mean, that, that's just the answer here is that what, what was cannot be no more. Um, Beth, uh, what say you about this uh, 10 cent deposit uh, new bottle bill movement? I go to the recycling place and literally half of the plastic cannot go into the recyclables. There's like the school group collects all the beer cans and soda cans and things like that. But but wine, water bottles, you know, fruit juices, I mean, again and again, or sometimes it might say acceptable in Vermont and California, but not in Massachusetts or, you know, it's maddening. You have to read each bottle to actually put it in its rightful spot. And and if we have people over half the bottles, you know, if we do have like, um, you know, um, a lot of bottles, they they go and they just go straight into the um, into the dump and don't get uh, recycled. Uh, Gaurav, what do you think? Is that a good move? Well, yeah, I just say, you know, I think it's just another example of how we think, you know, something that's cheap and easy, you know, uh, we're, 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 we're really recognizing the real costs of things, you know, and I think we, um, in, you know, plastics here, we're having a conversation about, you know, first of all, you're using fossil fuels to make these plastics, and then all the health impacts we're talking about here, we've got to embrace, you know, this, this, the whole stream of this, you know, really understanding downstream. And I do think I am concerned that more and more in the coming years, we're going to really understand the health impacts of this and, and also the health costs of this, right? So if we want a healthy, thriving society, we've got to invest in that. We've got to use these kind of economic incentives. Um, and it's going to be a win all around. We just have to have that vision to um, do it up front and, and realize some of these kind of cheap, convenient things we've gotten far too used to um, really, um, you know, is causing these invisible costs that we need to be conscious of and um, really make um, uh, embedded into our economic policy to 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 really recognize those costs. I just want to notice, uh, bring this part of the conversation to a close, that um, there is that movement of refillable water bottle stations, you know, in airports and other public places. You know, I am certain that it's another one of those situations where in, you know, wealthier communities you see more of it, but it's out there, which is helpful. Um, but, it, of course, it requires you to bring a cup that you can use or a refillable bottle. And I had um, uh, put in y'all's uh, information packet just this interesting tiny, 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 tiny movement of reusable cups beyond that at Starbucks, for example, where they're encouraging people to do that. And I think it only works if you, you, you give people some incentive. In the public water places, 
it's great because you already have your bottle, presumably. And so, you know, you don't have to go purchase some. And the same thing with the Starbucks thing. They give you a discount or something if you bring the reusable. Yep, there's a lot of problems trying to make it work. But, you know, there are two ways, two small ways to Gurup's point about, you know, these conveniences that we can still have convenience and uh, maybe move in a different direction. So I'm hoping to see that. Can I add one thing to that, Kylie, which I think is really, which I think has worked really well, at least for me personally, because I, I I fly a lot. Airports all have these, you know, containers, not containers, you know, stations where you get water. And it, it is so great to think before I go to the airport of bringing my reusable water bottle or paying like $3.99 for a little bottle of water. And I think I, I see people using it, those things a lot. So I think the the comparison of, of what you're going to spend if you don't use it is 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 a good one. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Dr. Gaurav Basu, Director of Education and Policy at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health, Beth Daly, General Manager of The Conversation U.S., and Cabell Eames, Policy Consultant for Vote Solar. We're talking about the latest environmental news. Now, talk about uh, moving people, we thought, in the direction of a way to to um, reduce all kinds of bad impacts to the environment. You know, the move to electric cars, everybody thought it was good. And then we get cold weather. And what is this? You can't charge your vehicles. Um, Gaurav, did you know this? I had no idea until it happened. All right. <laughs> Callie, I got, I got a bee in my bonnet about this one. I'm going to push back. Okay. You know, uh, because, listen, the we have to electrify everything. We have to stop fossil fuels. We have to do it to protect our planet. We have to take care of each other and our health. We can't continue with uh, uh, internal combustion engine cars. I think that a lot of the stories about these EVs in the last few months have been a little over the top, including this cold. You know, you know what also doesn't turn on sometimes in the cold? What? Gas-driven cars. You warm them up, you know? though, and it can get started. <laughs> well, you know, I, I mean, you know, listen, where are the places where EV uptake is the most? It's in, Nor you know, Norway. These countries have figured it out. I've seen, um, you know, various studies saying, listen, let's break down the numbers of, yes, you know, in the cold, there's decreased range that is true of the batteries. Um, and um, sometimes they're having a hard time warming up and starting. But but actually, in, in some of the numbers I've seen, it happens more often with um, gas-driven cars. So th this is what I think. I mean, the um, explosion of cheap and of you know increasingly effective batteries is only going to improve. Like battery technology, you only have to think about your iPhone from twenty you know whatever fifteen years ago to now to realize how this technology just continues to get better, and that's going to happen with cars as well, that's gonna make them cheaper, that's gonna be better in cold weather, et cetera, et cetera. But there's gonna be some bumps around the road um, uh, about how we create this adapt adaptation. It's transforming our transportation system. We gotta lean into it, figure it out, problem solve these things and um, keep moving forward. Okay, well, uh, uh, before, <laughs> b before Beth and uh, Cavill uh, weigh in. Let's listen to this Uber driver who told NBC he was upset about his electric car. Every time I'm charge it up, it's, took, it's taken about an hour and a half. But you still have to wait for those other cars to get through charging, to even get to the charger. I'm not making no money, and time is money. Okay, Beth, weigh in. I think anytime you adopt a new technology, like there's quirk, there's 
kinks in it, right? And there's, it's not a kink, it's just a fact that you may not have realized. Like, I, I agree, you know, our our battery, and uh, a battery, our gas car is not working because it was too cold the other day. And our electric car definitely, you know, lost some of its 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 uh, uh, range um, because of the cold. But it, it it is what it is. I mean, it, it Norway figured it out. Sweden figured it out. You know, they're the top buying um, electric car in mean, Norway. Eight eight out of every ten cars is an electric vehicle, and and it's working there. So we just need to adjust and get and get used to it. Um, and, and sure, the the, the First time you experience it, you're going to complain. But then, you, as Dr. Basu said, you get over it. I mean, there's things to do with your EV. Heat the cab. A lot, a big loss of the power is that people in cold weather heat their, you know, car cabin. You know, you keep the heat on really hot. Well, maybe heat it up while you're still attack, uh, attached to the grid, and uh, don't keep it so 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 um, you know so uh, uh, warm. So yeah, I, I I feel like sympathy. Sure, not great, but. <laughs> What what's the option? It's not. Uh, we can't go back. It's not. You're not. saying, yeah, yeah. yeah Cavill, you can't go back. Well, and we're not going back, right? We, the our governor has a plan to put a million EVs on the road by 2030, and they're gonna. Their the public fleets are are in four years, 2028. 20, um, you know, they're phasing out the sale of gasoline cars. So to me, this is just a little bit of like the temper tantrums of the industry, um, maybe feeding some media sound bites to all of those problems as they go kicking and screaming away from our roads. But EVs have made incredible advances over the years. They will continue to do so. The market is hot. We've got rebates in the state that incentivize point of sale purchases, which I'm extremely proud of, um, on top of the tax credits. And we're just not going back because we don't need to. And um, I know that there are challenges with all you know, energy transitions, vehicles, et cetera, change is hard, but we are doing it with grace and incentivizing the market to put more EVs on the road is the way forward. And I just don't, you know, this is just kind of like these types of stories are just kind of white noise to me. Okay. Well, we, we heard it here first. Um, I'm going to stick with you, Cavill, because the stories about solar are interesting. One coming out of California about, um, you know, layoffs in the uh, solar industry, which, of course, you know, um, does not help uh, with the um, distribution of solar panels and other ways to use solar energy. And then add to that that um, Massachusetts effort to uh, be more solar friendly and um, is slowed up as well. So um, put it in a context for us. It, it, where are we? Uh, California is usually the canary in the coal mine, which is why we look at those stories a little closely. But, you know, something's happening here in Massachusetts that doesn't look good either. So so what say you? I mean, this is what the Sierra Club calls the solar coaster, which I think is fitting. Um, but, you know, there the incentives are, are going away through net, median, net metering in California, which basically means that there's going to be huge job losses. Um, and so, you know, this is an unpredictable market, but it's driven still by the utility companies because they still kind of dictate the pace of solar. So I think that that is the real issue here um, is that their interests are taken over the interests of renewable energy in a lot of cases. Um, but, you know, there is 
there is also the issue of the SMART program in the state of Massachusetts, because that's about to run out. There is a lot of conversation about SMART 2.0, but right now the developers are having a hard time making decisions just because of the headwinds of the industry. Um, but there is hope around the corner. I do want to say that there is an EPA grant that the state has applied for that would be 200, we applied for $250 million for a solar for all grant that would help low income and uh, environmental justice communities, uh, renters access solar, but we do need more build out of community solar. Uh, in order to meet those needs. There's a lot of companies out there that have projects in the pipeline that have been delayed by, you know, transmission issues or microgrid issues or uh, inflation market issues. So again, you know, the, the, the solar coaster title of this kind of rings true, but um, there is light at the end of the tunnel, but we just have to keep on it. We have to build the, cr the critical mass. This is the energy, the way that we're gonna electrify and get to the goals of 2030 that the state has and the 2035 that the federal government has. Uh, because if we don't, then we're going to be subject to the utility companies continuing to dictate how we get our energy. All right, Beth. Yeah, I mean, Cattle's really the expert, and she said it so eloquently. I mean, you can't give up. I mean, we're, I read somewhere that some people see as the victim of our own success. I mean, we were a national leader, and we still are, in solar adoption um, because of all the incentives and subsidies. Um, but there's not that much room, they say, on the electric grid for new projects to connect and, and fixing, you know, that, that will be fixed, but it, right, it's, it's a little bit of a waiting game. And I think a lot of people are, are, are waiting and hoping grants don't run out before that, that problem is fixed. Um, we can't, we can't give up. I mean, I just personally speaking, I have solar and it, it's amazing. I mean, it's, it, it works. It, 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 it pays for itself over time. And I think if we can figure out these growing pains, you know, Massachusetts will have nothing will hold us back. Gura? No, I, I agree with everything um, said so far. And I'll just say, you know, I, I mean, um, we, we also, you know, the coordination regionally and nationally, you know, getting transmission lines, all this stuff, there's, I just, uh, I know this group feels there's so much cool, interesting, important, impactful policy that can um, be done. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and you're going to need some coordination to make sure that, you know, the grid is robust, that we're moving energy uh, to where it needs to be. Um, we can do all of this. We know how to do this. I mean, I think we need to not lose the message that the stakes are high on this challenge and we know what to do. We've got brilliant folks like problem solving all of these things. Um, and really this era of kind of, you know, um, shuffling our feet and deciding whether we need to move forward, we've just got to go assertively, ambitiously forward. And I have great confidence we are going to solve these sticking points, uh, whether it's solar or EVs or, or offshore wind or what, whatever. Um, we, we've just got to keep moving forward with with um, smart policy that, that coordinates these efforts. All right. Well, let's end with a uh, uplifting story. I always like that. I love the story about this new environmental education nonprofit called Change is Simple. They go um, bring the classroom uh, to elementary students in Massachusetts and elsewhere. And um, it's a mobile science lab, and it learns lets them learn about climate change and sustainability in uh, landscapes and waters. And um, apparently it's... Uh, 
quite effective. Let's listen to this teacher who spoke with ABC about the touchable lessons from Change is Simple. This is one of the best ones because they actually get to see it and see pictures where we would not be, my kids are not going to a rainforest. Um, they're not going to the attic. So when we start talking about different things like that, it actually, they could say, oh, I remember that picture. As a 35-year educator, you could tell us that hands-on is how people oh, hold on to information. You know, we teach, they can get it, but when they're getting hands-on and they're seeing it and they're reading about it, it sticks. All right, Gorup, this is great. Yeah, I love it. You know, I, I, a lot of my work in climate work is education. And I would say, look, I mean, there, there, it's clear that um, that the youth are so connected to this issue. Uh, we talk a lot about the mental health impacts that uh, it has on them, but they're so motivated too. And I think that while we're talking about this wonky policy and, and the urgency of getting it done in the right moment, We've got to instill this sense of joy and and connection to nature and and a real um, sense of stewardship and 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 responsibility uh, for our planet. And so, um, you, you know, I I didn't come into climate work until later in my life because, frankly, I didn't do that much in nature growing up. And um, it's been a real awakening for me in my adult life as I've gotten into this work. Um, and having um, these uh, projects in the classroom, my kids are getting some of these themselves and in their school, um, is really, really important uh, because it really um, will help them see this from a very young age and bring their creativity and passion to it. What would you add, Beth? Just, I totally agree. I mean, what Dr. Pursue is doing in general um, with his education work is amazing. And these programs like like this, I mean, that's probably more for the, for um, you know others in in the field, but for, for the for the for children. I mean, I see I have a seventeen year old, and you know the world looks kind of bleak sometimes for people, particularly around climate change. So connecting and finding joy and um, is exactly what needs to happen. Well, Cabin One would say advocacy is um, education at its base. So you must love this. Oh, I absolutely do. I think I love it even more. I'm going to put in a plug here for our climate, who is actually lobbying on this very legislation for climate education on Tuesday. They are very passionate about it. This is um, the second time that they've been filing it. They are a group that is very astute to the issues, but also is very invigorated by the solutions. And I think that should we pass something like this in Massachusetts, you know, we're already an innovative state when it comes to technologies. And I think that it would just up our game and that we would be able to create solutions at scale that right now we haven't even thought of. Well, I will add that uh, our own Kirk Carapeza, who uh, covers higher education, has an excellent piece about what's happening on college campuses uh, in the same vein, but obviously at a different level of sophistication. So a lot going on in this uh, reaching out to young people to get them thinking about this in a very real way. I want to thank you all for joining me. Pleasure Thanks to be for here. Having us. Dr. Gaurav Vasu is the Director of Education and Policy at the Center for Climate Health and the Global Environment at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Beth Daly is the Executive Editor and General Manager of The Conversation U.S. And Cabal Eames is the Policy Consultant for Vote Solar. Coming up, 
a retired teacher and writer who grew up in Cabo Verde, is helping to formalize the indigenous language of the West African country still spoken today in many greater Boston communities. He is publishing a dictionary translating English to Cabo Verdean to be published later this year. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.